Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The following podcast is equivalent to a TVMA rating thanks to the author's strong and frequent use of adult language and graphic recollection of her sexual escapades. We strongly advise listening alone or with an extremely open-minded, politically incorrect companion, such as a gay bestie. Hello, and welcome back to another new episode of How Bitches Are Made. I just want to start by thanking you all for joining me on my ongoing journey. I hope you're enjoying season two as much as I'm enjoying making it. I want to thank all of you who have subscribed and continue to listen and support this overall journey. And I want to welcome all the people that are listening for the first time. Welcome. Uh, Be sure to listen to our introductory mini-sode if you are new to the podcast. It will give you a brief introduction into the overall concept, what we're all doing here. And it will explain to you the cycle of how a bitch is made, as well as the three ways that a bitch is made. And while our stories here that I tell are not exactly in sequential order, I do highly recommend going back and listening to the podcast from the very first episode. It will just make the lessons and references a lot easier to follow along with. Uh, I guess with that, let's just jump into the next chapter, shall we, with this week's story. The following is a true story, as sad as that is for me to admit. Names have been changed to protect the innocent and the anything but. Chapter 14, Restructuring Your Company. It was nearly 10 years ago when I found myself in the throes of one of the worst breakups of my life. You may remember him as Unicorn Penis. And while it's easy to recognize I was more sorrowful over the loss of his penis than of the remarkably bigger dick attached, at the time, I felt like I was missing out on the most amazing person I'd ever conjured up. It's easy to want to push it all far back into the depths of the past and forget it ever happened, save for the comedic material it brought me anyway. And I very well might have. That is, had it not been for one beautiful gift that breakup ultimately gave me. Mark Hapka, the unexpected friendship that formed as a result of two shattered hearts. Not only was he coming on to Days of Our Lives as I was leaving it, he'd also happened to have been nursing his own freshly broken heart by the hands of a girl who had, coincidentally, been a former girlfriend of the guy who had just broken mine. Anyone who says Hollywood is incestuous has obviously never slept with their co-star. Anyway, Mark and I developed a friendship after I invited him to a SAG pre-screening, of which I was on the voting committee. Our screenings together became more frequent, as did our discussions and uncovering commonalities between one another, which ultimately led to one very memorable trip to New York City, and everyone's suspicion that we were fucking. Of course we weren't, mostly because we pretty much already had, thanks to our four degrees of separate fornicating. In actuality, though, 
our relationship was quite the opposite. As Mark worded it, I should be your alpha male and you can be my alpha female, right? Like in a relationship, I take on the duties of your boyfriend. Um, I'm there when you need me. I can hang shit for you. I can fix things around your, your place. I can kill your spiders or, well, let's be honest, I can carefully capture and relocate them. And, and you can take on the duties of a girlfriend, right? You can, you can give me an excuse to watch rom-coms without being judged or, uh, I don't know, help me decorate my apartment. Or you can rub my feet. Yeah, I'm never touching your feet. I'm kidding. I'm just saying that, like, we could be there for each other emotionally and have the comfort and security of a relationship without it being complicated by sex. You know what I mean? I don't know. I think it's brilliant. I know how it sounds. Like, this proposition of his was actually a cleverly disguised proposal to be his beard. But it wasn't. In reality, it was Mark's way of ensuring we both stay single long enough to properly heal from our previous relationships, instead of falling right back into another before either of us was truly ready. And it worked. One solid year later, I began dating the guy I'd be with for the next five years, while Mark would meet a woman he'd be with for the next four. Contrary to what is often thought to be a myth or a fable, our co-ed friendship not only survived, it thrived. Our plan had worked, and to this day, it's one of the most poignant lessons I've ever learned. So when that five-year relationship of mine ultimately ended, I knew the importance and value of being alone before I searched for another, and made the necessary plans to do just that. Only this time, I knew I didn't need an alpha male to help me through the transition. I was ready to be alone. The first few months I spent almost exclusively in the desert away from the crowded noise of the city and the rat race that beat my energy, confidence, and sense of self to a pulp. At first, I was caught off guard by friendly neighbors who waved to me from their cars as they passed. Were they mistaking me for someone they knew? I was on high alert when they knocked on my door to introduce themselves and welcome me to the neighborhood. What did they want from me? Were they trying to case the place? Gather information to rape or kill me? Okay, I might be listening to too many Dateline podcasts. Anyway, it never occurred to me they might just be recognizing my human existence and value that enough alone to simply say hello. Suffice it to say, the effects of living in a city for nearly 20 years were no doubt apparent. And as time went on, I slowly began to realize that I too was once a friendly person who waved at neighbors, spoke to strangers in the checkout line, and offered to help people if and when I noticed they needed it. That was before I dated, went on auditions, and made a living as an actor, of course. But it was enough to give me pause and really wonder who else I was, without the city, my profession, or another person, complicating or defining that existence. In taking the time to be alone, I eventually reconnected with a passion for design that I'd left behind me in high school, tackling a home renovation with nothing but my own two hands and the company of several HGTV hosts. I discovered I was not only capable of, but strong enough to do things on my own without the help of a man. Not that the guys in LA I dated offered much help in that realm anyway, but regardless. My lifelong disdain of alcohol suddenly transitioned into private nightly cocktail hours, when celebratory drinking segued into a song and dance party for an audience of one canine. Not since the day of belting out Christina Aguilera's I Turn to You in the upstairs bedroom of my parents' house 
had I experienced the freedom of singing at the top of my lungs without worrying about complaints from my neighbors. Before I knew it, I'd become one of those annoying people who don't watch TV anymore, too. Instead, I was reading and writing. I'd taken to astrology and birth charts for spiritual guidance and understanding, and found my anxiety had been exchanged for peace, thanks to sunset silhouetting wildlife scurrying about my property as I watched from a distance in my hammock. There was so much ambition, desire, and sufficiency being in a couple had kept from me. So much joy, freedom, and beauty that living in a city had withheld. So much pretense, judgment, and anxiety working in an industry as unique as mine had generated. Despite how dark the desert nights were, they certainly shed some light on all I'd been shutting out. By the end of the fall, I decided my time in solitary confinement was coming to its end. Much to my dismay, though, I realized that while I did have a better sense of who I was, I hadn't the slightest idea on how to go about sharing that with anyone else. After all, I'd met every boyfriend I'd had since I was 19, either at an audition or on a set. And so, I began working on an online dating profile. There wasn't much to choose from. A case I suspected as much, thanks to the ever-relevant Sex in the City, whose single 30-something storylines had warned me of and prepared me for. Still, over the next four months, I managed to find myself going on multiple dates with guys I found to be genuinely good. Surprising to my peers once I revealed I'd met most of them on Tinder. But there was Tom, for instance, a woodworker from Oregon. He was portly, outdoorsy, genuine, and kind. And though his eyes remained hopeful across from my own, I could tell that there was a sadness behind them from past failures, pain, and disappointments. Letting him down was more than I could handle, which is why I opted not to handle it at all and ghosted him instead. I'm an avoidant, and I am not proud of it. Then there was Joey, a tiny tech guy from New York who happened to find himself in a staff writing position. He was interesting enough, but if I'm being honest, I kind of resented him for dumping on a dream job of mine he possessed and didn't appreciate. Plus, he was way too tiny to want to imagine naked. Avi was by far the most beautiful man I've ever gone on a date with. A Moroccan-Israeli with incredibly long lashes, he had brown eyes that actually sparkled. And the personality of a coconut. Seriously. He was boring, hard to crack, and once you did, there wasn't much there. It was an interesting date regardless, though. While I pushed for the fail-safe date of coffee, aka a short enough meeting to determine whether or not you want to spend more than 20 minutes with someone, Avi insisted we get dinner. He showed up late and was immediately disappointed when he saw me. The truth was, he was out of my league. By a long shot. <laughs> you see, someone like Avi ends up with someone who looks like Gal Gadot. But I genuinely didn't give a shit. I didn't give a shit that his body was turned away from mine, a clear indicator of disinterest. And I didn't give a shit that he was looking around for other girls who were hotter than me the entire time I talked to him. Notice I said, when I talked to him. I didn't give a shit that someone else at the bar informed me I had chocolate all over the back of my dress in front of him, or that he wasn't the one to tell me for himself. And why didn't I give a shit? Because by this point, 
I had spent enough time alone to know that I was the shit. And that wasn't just the chocolate on my ass talking. I had a ton to offer, and I knew that it was on him for not noticing. Ironically, he did, though, which was the funny part. I remember giggling to myself on the inside as I observed him growing more attracted toward me, my quirkiness, and my no-fucks-given attitude. Much to my surprise, or maybe not, who knows, he suggested that we go for dessert at Ciccone's. Now, Ciccone's is an extremely fancy Italian restaurant in the middle of West Hollywood, and it's incredibly hard to get into. At least, it is for people like me. Avi, however, apparently held the key, along with a few others. While having drinks at the bar, the bartender slid her hand across the bar top, ushering an object underneath her palm toward us and stopping it directly in front of Avi. This is from the table over there. When she lifted her hand, Avi picked up a key from the bar top. He looked at it, bothered and discouraged, before slipping it into his pocket. What is that? It's nothing. Is that a key? Yeah. I get them all the time. Stupid. I wasn't sure what it meant, though I had a pretty good idea. An idea that seemed to be confirmed once Avi became very sullen and introverted, confiding in me his incredible loneliness and depression over not being able to find someone authentic to connect with in Los Angeles. It was a sentiment I was well familiar with, on the female side at least, but one that caught me off guard from the other. And it would be a sentiment continuously echoed from the male perspective on almost every date there and after. Like, for instance, on my date with a man named Ed. Ed was a comedy writer for Conan, a chivalrous, polite, sweet, doting man whose witty banter made me long for a sexual connection, though unfortunately, one would never transpire. What a shame, because he really did handle my approaching someone I mistook for Ethan Embry with impeccable grace. At the end of our second date, he thanked me for being, quote, normal, something that shocked me to hear, not just because I'm typically not described that way, but because I wondered what crazy-ass bitches he must have grown accustomed to dating to make me appear normal. Girls out here are just so boring and predictable. I mean, the ones I've gone out with just seem so superficial and like they're only interested in money or getting ahead. Huh. You wouldn't believe how many girls asked me if I can introduce them to Conan. The notion was crazy to me. I mean... Who does that? Call me crazy, but I've just never taken any interest in meeting a tall, red-headed Muppet. But to each his own, I guess. Josh was another genuine guy with his shit together who I wished my vagina had responded to. He was successful, punctual, had a younger sister, his parents were still married, he hailed from New York, ugh, my dream town, and had nothing to do with the business. He, too, expressed concerns over being able to find someone to settle down with, following it up with the words, in time. He wanted a family, kids, and because I didn't really see it going anywhere, I didn't really find the need to tell him those were things my jury was still out on. In the end, though, it really came down to a pheromone thing. His scent made me feel like I was in a diluted dream, to where I felt like I was hovering over Los Angeles instead of actively participating in it. Of course, that could have just been a post-breakup haze rising to the surface. And because I didn't see it going anywhere, I didn't really find the need to tell him that either. So, I didn't. 
In fact, I never said anything. I'm not proud of it. The bottom line was there was absolutely nothing wrong with any of the men I dated, except for the fact that they weren't right for me. And while my friends may have marveled at my luck for finding countless needles in haystacks, I was confident my luck was actually a skill, directly attributed to the amount of time I'd spent alone. You see, I didn't want or need anything from anyone. And not only did this give me an appealing edge, it also allowed me to develop a real-life filter to sift through the things I wanted to have in my life and the things I didn't. I was able to see through facades, read between the lines, and most importantly, recognize broken boundaries that indicated someone hadn't spent enough time alone to properly heal themselves before trying to date. I knew a relationship with someone like that would never be a healthy one, and so I avoided them at all costs. That is, of course, with the exception of two specific, very memorable instances. The minute I saw Max's profile picture, I knew he was an actor. If not for the telltale signs that often showcase such a personality, then because I recognized him from a popular series I watched on Lifetime. To be honest, I didn't care for his acting, one bit. But I did think he could be very sweet and genuine, in a Southern kind of way that his looks really played into. I suspected he was going through a breakup because, well, it didn't take a rocket scientist to figure it out. His bio read, giving this another try. Again. And that was it. But also, he didn't really seem to be actively or seriously looking to date anyone either. His messages were often short, one-dimensional things like, what up? And were staggered, days apart. And at first, I didn't give him much thought or energy. I entertained him, only when I was bored enough. And then our cyber interaction sort of became a psychological experiment for me. I started mirroring his energy and actions to see how he'd react, and eventually, he got enough courage, boredom, or time, I guess, to finally ask me out for a drink. He suggested a spot close to him, of course, and at this point, I was very clear on the fact he wasn't worth my time. But I suppose I was curious to see just how accurate the filter I'd developed for the app was. He was nice enough when we met at a quaint dive bar in North Hollywood, of which he was a regular. But the conversation was like pulling teeth without any Novocaine. After a few beers, though, he loosened up and became a little more chatty, revealing that he and his longtime girlfriend were, in fact, off again. This time, for real. And that he was after what his parents had, a storybook romance that began back in high school. I didn't want to point out how that ship had sailed years ago. After all, I know that actors and math don't typically mix well. The first few days following our date, Max seemed more eager to make a connection, reaching out more actively and frequently. He was much more enthusiastic, too, communicative and inventive with his date suggestions, something I chalked up to him perhaps thinking he may have blown it with me at the dive bar that first night. And while our interests seemed to genuinely align, I couldn't help but notice our lifestyles couldn't have been more different. He was all about spontaneity, which I suppose is common, if not understandable, for an actor who's already shot a pilot during pilot season and is bored out of his mind. But me, on the other hand, I like to plan a few days out so I can make time for a date in the midst of all the other hard work I'm putting forth in my business endeavors. 
This seemed lost on him, though. Eventually, we were able to make a plan to go bowling one Wednesday. And while on my way, I received a text. Hey, hey, so, um, slight change of plans. I forgot it's my friend's birthday, um, so they're going to come bowling too. Do you mind? If I'd been taking him seriously as a potential mate at all, I certainly would have. After all, I was already over the hill. But at this point, I wasn't even sure that I took him seriously as a human being. I viewed him as more of a case study, wanting to see just how stereotypically accurate dating an actor on Tinder could be, and to give me something to write about, of course. No, not at all. The more the merrier. Cool. My friend said that was rude of me, but I told him you'd be cool with it. So far, stereotypically spot on. When I'd arrived at the bowling alley shortly later, I was surprised to discover his friend was actually a mutual acquaintance of mine. And if Max's overalls weren't already making it clear enough, the fact I was talking more to our friend Dustin was, this was by no means a love connection. Not that that had been my expectation, let alone my understanding. I just wasn't sure what he thought. After the game, the guys invited me to join them at their apartment for a mini-gathering. That was, of course, because they needed a ride home and were too broke to Uber. So, after stopping at a photo lab for them to pick up some pictures they'd developed along the way, we arrived at their apartment. I knew I wasn't going to stay long and eventually used an incoming audition as a scapegoat to make an early exit. The truth was... I started to get a little dizzy. Somehow, it felt like I'd stepped back in time to seven years earlier, when I often found myself bending over backwards trying to appease a man who'd experienced only a fraction of my own success, yet remarkably acted as though it was a privilege for me to experience a taste of their world. Of course, the dated kitchen and lack of light coming in from a ground-floor unit of an apartment complex certainly didn't help with the timestamp either. And while I knew this situation was different from the ones of my past, it all felt a little too familiar. So, I politely ducked out and returned to the safety of my car, a car that I had worked for and earned entirely on my own, and drove myself back over the hill to the most coveted part of the city I was fortunate enough to call home. I printed out my sides and got to work on rehearsing my audition. Max and I never spoke again. When pilot season ended, I returned to the desert and decided to try my luck dating there. I suppose I wondered if I might find a different kind of guy outside of the city. Someone who loved the outdoors as much as I did, who wasn't afraid to get their hands dirty, but preferred to spend their money on whiskey and hard drugs as opposed to on Whole Foods. If you've ever been to the high desert of California, then you know what I'm talking about. Still, I held out hope for meeting my dream man in a different location— even despite sifting through countless profile photos of men posing with their pit bulls, tattoo sleeves, and six-packs of beer. Eventually, I stumbled across Jared, a man whose picture seemed relatively approachable, albeit slightly blurry. His profile simply read, Hi, I'm Jared. I'm a contractor, and I love what I do. I had told my parents a while back that I had a vision of meeting someone in the desert who would ultimately be the chip to my Joanna. It was a factor in what had originally pulled me out there in the first place, though I'd yet to actively look for him. Could this be him? After a few casual and normal exchanges, Jared asked for my number and immediately put it to good use. Just five minutes later, my phone lit up a number with an area code I didn't recognize. I remember being shocked he'd called so quickly, and even debated whether or not to answer. 
I just wasn't sure I wanted my cocktail party of one to turn into a party of two. Or if I was ready to make a verbal connection with a stranger. A smirk crawled across my face while I deliberated. Born out of discomfort, really, though I'd failed to recognize that for the few weeks it took to catch up to what my subconscious already understood. Completely. Ultimately, I did decide to answer, and was pleasantly surprised to find myself engaged in meaningful conversation. For the next three and a half hours. While I enjoyed Jared's voice, laugh, humor, and personality, I did note it wasn't as easy to hang up with him as I felt it should have been after using so many rollover minutes. I chose to see it as a good sign, however, an indication that not only was this guy into me, he was emotionally available and seriously looking for someone to partner off with. The following week, we met up for our first date in Palm Springs, where the notorious cable cars usher hopeful romantics and oversold tourists to the top of the Idlewild Mountain, where a restaurant and a hiking trail lie at the summit. Only, I didn't know this. I'd only heard of a fancy restaurant that offered incredible scenic views of the entire Coachella Valley. And so, after doing some light research, I dressed accordingly in a black, chic Alice and Olivia onesie. It was an outfit I felt incredibly comfortable and confident in, and felt represented me accurately. On my way to the date, I tried to temper how excited I was by setting very low expectations. There's only so much disappointment a girl can take, after all. Still, there was something that seemed promising enough to keep me hopeful that this would be a very memorable evening. It never occurred to me it might be memorable for very different reasons. Right out the gate, it was an uphill battle. Literally. The parking lot for the facility is situated on the side of a mountain on such a steep incline that if I'd had a passenger, gravity would have closed the car door for them without so much as a tap. For a driver wearing heels, however, closing the car door not only took a lot of uphill force, it took a very strong background in ballet. I immediately felt like an idiot. And hiking uphill toward a man who was dressed, at best, to be a spectator at the PGA tour certainly didn't help either. With every step I closed in on the outdated loose dockers, oversized button-up blouse, newsboy hat, and man sitting underneath, dread set in. We were from two totally different worlds. He greeted me with the same awareness I'd had when I'd met Avi for the first time. Only, Jared was nervous and did very little to hide it. I acted my ass off, pretending not to notice his trembling hands, beads of sweat, or the smell of fear they produced. I felt bad. One part of me was immediately annoyed I had committed to an entire evening here, while the other part of me felt guilty, knowing that, despite how hopeful and excited he was, this was likely to be the first and last time we'd ever see each other. The entire time he ushered me up to the lobby and into the cable car, all I could think about was how he looked nothing like his picture. He was at least five years older and far more stressed than he'd been when that photo was originally taken. And the person in front of me seemed far more shy than the person I'd been talking to on the phone. Although it would later come to my attention that he'd been drinking on that phone call. Not that I'm one to judge. Anyway, with several hours still ahead of me, I did my best to hide my disappointment and make him feel more comfortable and relaxed so that, frankly, I could be too. And I engaged in some self-deprecating comedy to poke fun of what I was wearing.
If I'd realized there was a hiking trail, I would have at least coordinated with some Merrells. The truth was, at this point, I only felt overdressed because of what the hikers around us were wearing. We'd yet to make it inside of the fancy restaurant, after all, which was what I had dressed up for. Not some hiking excursion. But once we stepped inside, I officially felt like a fish out of water. In an instant, it became very clear that L.A. fancy is drastically different from the general fancy that most of the world abides by. The restaurant was dark, adorned with chandeliers made out of antlers, and boasted enough flagstone to bring me back to my Arizona summers when I spent most of my upbringing running around pool decks of the same material. A fireplace worked hard to provide an upscale ambiance, along with a cognac-colored leather bar top and matching stools that no doubt were part of a designer's wet dream in the 70s. I opened the menu when my diamond ring caught the light and subsequently, Jared's attention. This is pretty. He took my hand in his and pulled it closer toward him to inspect it. He did so with the kind of familiarity that might otherwise indicate we'd already been on a few dates together. Where'd you get it? I didn't want to answer. I knew how it would sound, especially in a place like this, coming from a girl who looked like I did in that setting. Tiffany, in New York, it was the first thing I bought for myself when I could finally afford it. I was going to say when I booked my first acting job, but I didn't think a guy like him could handle knowing that that was what I did for a living. Little did I know how right I would be. Following our date that night, he continued to reach out to schedule another. I repeatedly told him I didn't have the time, which wasn't a lie. I'd been going back and forth from L.A. to the desert and was only in town a few days at a time, working on my house every spare second I had. And I actually wasn't ready to completely discount Jared yet either. I had just decided to put dating on the back burner for the time being, which is why we did continue to talk. But over the next week or so... I observed my consciousness trying to reason with my intuition, selling Jared to me on his prose. He wasn't so bad. Perhaps I was just being too picky. He was nice enough, paid for dinner, offered me his jacket when he observed I was cold, which he was also observant. He opened doors for me, was close with his sister and his mother, he had a steady job. He reached out and followed up, he could carry on a conversation for God's sakes. Which, as it turns out, is a surprisingly hard quality to find in someone. But then, as if in a mental tennis match with itself, I would respond. Yeah, but resting his hand on the small of your back, guiding you to and fro? No thank you. That is way too familiar a gesture and way too soon. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. You don't respond to his pheromones, he dresses horribly, and no, that's not you being superficial, that's how a person presents themselves. Sure, that is something you could change, but do you really need another fixer-upper? And no, I'm not referring to the house when I say that. Perhaps the biggest point my critical mind had over my empathetic optimistic one was how eager Jared seemed about me. He was straddling the line of what was an appropriate amount of interest in someone you'd only met once, and pushy desperation. 
It sort of reminded me of the farmer, actually. As if he too were reacting to a perceived idolized version of me as opposed to the actual woman who was sitting before him. Frankly, though I didn't want to say it, he felt like a fan. And it didn't take long for me to find out that's exactly what he was. He eventually confessed he had recognized me from Dumb and Dumber the minute I approached him in the parking lot of our date. Well, that explained his nerves and initial shyness, at least. And just as I anticipated, he wasn't able to handle it. At all. Once the cat was out of the bag, the frequency of his phone calls and texts began to increase rapidly, regardless of whether or not I responded or answered to any of them, and he paid no attention when I continued to reiterate that I wasn't in a place to prioritize dating. In fact, though we'd still only gone out that one time, he seemed to be assuming the role of my boyfriend more and more gradually, whether I was aware of it or not. So look, I had a pretty interesting conversation with a co-worker today. I told her I was dating the girl from Dumb and Dumber, and she told me that I should get a lawyer. Or a publicist, you know? Because, like, what if the people from TMZ want to talk to me? I should be familiar with how to handle that kind of press. I need to know what to say, or what not to say. Two totally different worlds. It was like I'd been clubbed over the head. How had I not seen it so clearly? I did. This is what I've been trying to tell you, my subconscious screamed. It was true. The more I thought about all the signs I'd subconsciously noticed, the more I realized I'd been taking notes, just not heeding them. The signs had all been there from the very beginning. Our first phone call, for instance, how quickly he'd placed it, how long we'd talked, the fact he was drinking when he placed that call. It was easy to write it off as excitable interest, but I knew it didn't quite sit right. After all, isn't that why I smirked uncomfortably when the phone initially rang? And that was when I was alone. Then, of course, there was what followed. The ignorance, the flagrant disregard for my communications, the persistence despite it, incorrectly perceiving our relationship or lack thereof. All signs Jared not only failed to respect my own boundaries, he lacked having any of his own. I never responded to another phone call or message from him again, though... That didn't keep them from coming in. In the end, I decided to take another break from dating for a while. Though I met a lot of kind, interesting people online, I couldn't help but notice they all seemed to have one thing in common. They were looking for a band-aid. A quick fix to satisfy a wound they didn't want to sit with, let alone tend to. Ironically enough, it would be a physical wound in the physical world that would ultimately bring me my dream man. My grandma is remembered for many pearls of wisdom she'd bestow upon us regularly. Two of her most common were, loneliness is a killer, and love is blind, marriage is an eye-opener. I believe she's right about them both. Loneliness is a killer, but I believe it's responsible for killing a version of ourselves that no longer serves us, so that a new, more informed, and evolved version can be born. Then, love really isn't so blind. Rather, we're finally able to see clearly enough to know exactly who we're marrying and why we're choosing to get married in the first place. And we're back. I'm very excited. I am recording from my 
art box, which is essentially a storage shipping container on our property that I have decked out to be a recording and art studio. And this is the first time, because there's no air or electricity in here. <laughs> this is the first time it's the weather's been nice enough for me to be recording inside of here. So it's very exciting to have moved out of the closet that I normally record in, <laughs> in case you guys didn't know. I'm usually in my walk-in closet surrounded by all my outfits. Uh, and now this feels way more appropriate. So, so here we go. Um, let's talk about this week's story and why I told you it. So it's really about identity, freedom, and power. So if you think back to last week's story, we talked about this summer camp that I attended a few years ago. And they mentioned all of these masks that we hide behind. So the summer camp, there's no drinking, no alcohol. You don't know people's real names. You don't know what they do for a living. And all of that was designed to strip away these masks that we hide behind. In other words, these ways that we find our identity. That was my biggest takeaway from camp. I, I thought it was so genius and wonderful. Uh, because it really is interesting how when you strip away all these masks, you're able to get in touch with yourself, who you truly, truly are, and what matters. So what are these different masks? Um, they're, as I just mentioned, your name, age, gender, sexuality, where you come from, what you do, what your hobbies are, who you're friends with, what your family dynamic is, all of these sort of like constructs or ways that we're able to define who we are. Um, and women, I find, stereotypically more often than not, are raised to define themselves by who they're with. Especially if you think back to your parents, if you're my age, or your grandparents, you realize that a woman's form of success really was, especially like in the 50s, like getting married. That was sort of the pinnacle goal, right? The end-all be-all. Once you've done that, You've done your job, aside from having kids, which is another job, but it's, um, I didn't mean for that to sound sarcastic. I, I was alluding to that being more like that was your job back in the 50s. That was a woman's duty, which, you know, I have feelings about, but, but, uh, but really that, that was the focus of a woman. Get married, have children, raise the children. Nowadays, we thankfully have so many more opportunities and different ways that we can define success. But I do still think that there is a level of identity that comes from where we are in life and marriage kind of plays into that, but also who your friends are. Nowadays, it's how many followers you have. And what's something that's really super interesting about identity too, um, I, I'm sure there are people listening that feel like me. It's it's like you're confronted with the question of who you are almost every day. An example would be on social media, your bio line. How do you summarize who you are in however many characters that allows you to use? It's crazy. And the whole point of life is it's a constant journey of figuring out who you are. And the reason it's so constant is because if we're lucky and we're living correctly, we're constantly evolving and changing and growing. So that's always going to be redefined. So the idea of even like defining it in terms of a word or a label is is kind of ridiculous and frankly, really limiting. So those would be examples of masks. And it's really important that we, that like the camp preaches we strip ourselves of those masks so that we can have a deeper understanding of who really we are at the core, not who society or social constructs or our profession is trying to tell us we are. 
These are what I call distractors, these outside pressures to be cool, to be accepted, to be easily explained or conveyed to people so that they know what box to put you in. These are, uh, masks is just another word for labels. It's the world forcing you to tell us who you are. Pick a side, a cause, what's your brand? So that's what I mean when I say all of that. And the demands of everyday life are almost like designed to distract us or deter us from really figuring out who we are, right? We have so many options, first of all, of, of who we are and how to figure out who we are. And the easiest way to do this is to just stereotype, generalize, put us in a box, I'm going to call myself out here and be like, just kind of like the word bitch. If you're a bitch, according to this podcast, you're a badass, independent woman who's in total control of her life. But we recognize that that's just who you are in a snapshot, right? There's obviously a lot more to be explained behind that. But with these distractions in life and the demands of life, we're not really spending enough time with ourselves to know who we are or even what we like or what makes us tick, what matters to us or even how we've evolved. We're kind of mired in the mess of who society is trying to tell us to be or how society in its confines or constructs defines us as being. Even our relationships are distracting, which I kind of briefly touched upon already, like your family dynamics, the hierarchy sometimes in your friendships, the hierarchy in your business, professional life, and of course, the dynamics of your life partners. Okay, so how can you be clear on who you are? The best way to do this, and you've heard me say this before, is to silence the world around you by being alone. Immerse yourself in an isolated setting. Now, again, when I wrote all these stories, it was pre-pandemic. So now we've all had this intense time of being isolated and by ourselves. And you realize, and you've heard about, if you've not even gone through it firsthand, how many things all of a sudden were brought to your attention. Do you like the space you live in? What do you even like to be surrounded by? Do you miss your friends? Did you find yourself not having certain friendships anymore because all of a sudden this pandemic, for whatever reason, interpret as you'd like, created division? There were many things that were being presented to us that suddenly we had the time to consider and analyze. So that's a really great example of how and why being alone is really, really beneficial. It makes you clear on who you are and it makes it easier to see and to hear the things that really matter to you. It becomes very black and white, like this matters more than I thought it did and this doesn't matter so much. If you've been following me along in my journey, you may have picked up on the fact that this kind of is something I went through pre-pandemic when I moved to the desert. I had this great epiphany where I started realizing I wasn't living life properly and I started to examine what properly meant to me and then it caused me to make all these decisions that I never would have imagined myself making and granted there are still you know the dust is still settling in certain ways from that that whole endeavor which was already almost four years ago I can tell you with absolute certainty, I am a much happier and mentally healthier person. Not to mention all of these things that felt like they were missing in my life, I now have and I feel fulfilled. 
But you have to do some really, really uncomfortable work to get that reward. And that's sort of what we're talking about here when it comes to being alone. There's such a negative stigma, especially for women, to be alone. It makes you feel like you're a failure or you're like a sad loser who doesn't have friends or goes out. That's not the kind of alone I'm talking about. I mean, dating yourself, really, I guess is the best way to say it, where you're not prioritizing time for other people. You're prioritizing your alone time, getting, you know, taking yourself out on date nights, if you will, to get to know who you are and what makes you tick. But um, before I, I move fully into that, I, I want to address a couple other things. But when you spend time alone, you learn things about yourself you never knew. And there are surprises, of course. It makes you see other people clearly too. And perhaps that's the most, for me at least, it was the biggest takeaway and the biggest gift I got from being alone. You start to realize people who have boundaries, people who have broken boundaries, people who have no boundaries at all. You start to see whether or not people have self-worth or value or their lack thereof. The world benefits from us kind of being in this stupor of not knowing who we are, right? It's sort of like we're sick in a, in a mental and emotional way. And we're being treated instead of cured. And what I mean by that is last week I referenced these four stages of being in a relationship. And I said that that most of us are stuck in that first stage, the honeymoon stage, which most people think, oh, that's like three to six weeks. No, no, no. That can last for years. It's so much of what we're exposed to in media, entertainment, music. And so when things start to get hard, we think... This isn't, this has run its course. We've expired. It's too tough. I'm going to throw in the towel. Because again, we're looking at it as the honeymoon phase is over, but we think that that honeymoon phase is supposed to be forever. But there's three other phases that come after that that are so much more significant and indicative of a healthy, full, wonderful relationship. Um, That sheet article link is on howbitchesaremade.com. You can go to the podcast references page so you'll be able to find it there. But we are fed unhealthy narratives through music, media, and entertainment and it keeps us in this cycle or pattern that's incredibly unhealthy. But because everybody else seems to be in it, we've normalized it. And it's, it's actually profitable for the few who do benefit off of that mental and emotional dysfunction. So just to summarize really quickly... There is a lot of value in being alone. There's a lot of importance and meaningful material that you will get from being alone. But again, it does have such a negative connotation that so many of us are afraid to go there or we're deterred from going there. We get caught up in the distractions that keep us from going there. So why do we fear it? I kind of already explained like how we're worried people will perceive us like we're losers or something. But really, I think at least subconsciously, People are truly afraid of being alone because it's very confronting. And at times it can feel like failure, right? Especially if we don't choose to be alone, which is why I think choosing to be alone is so empowering because you're declaring that you want to take this time to heal yourself. And that's really admirable and brave, honestly. Loneliness is hard and it's work. Henceforth, it's hard work. But again, it's incredibly rewarding. By being alone, we notice the things that distract us from what really matters. Most often, it's the superficial things. 
We then weigh those things differently just because we're aware of the fact that a lot of the things we thought mattered actually don't. We just thought they did because someone was telling us they should. Another great reason to be alone is because it naturally helps you develop this litmus test that I've referred to a couple times and an assessment test. When you're clear on what's important to you and also what your boundaries and standards are, you really do become more capable of not taking things so personally. It just kind of rolls off your back more, which obviously would create more positive energy, which would put you in a more positive state overall. But my favorite thing that happened, at least for me, was there was this shift where I stopped looking for approval because all of a sudden I became the one that was doing the approving, which was something I was not used to. And then as a result, I grew more confident in my relationships, which makes sense, right? That's the power of being alone and what makes that process so rewarding. So let's talk a little bit more about that power specifically. When you're clear on who you are, you get clear on who else is and you get clear on other people. So you guys have heard me talk about this kind of like x-ray vision or like filter I developed. I believe I even said that in the story where you really can just see through people's bullshit. You can hear what they're not saying. You can hear what they're really saying. It's it's super, super fascinating. You go into this kind of, it's almost like a kind of voyeurism, I guess, where you're really watching people. It's like people watching, but in a very succinct, perceptive, and hyper-focused way. And part of the reason it's so cool, aside from just being kind of entertaining and fascinating, is because it helps us attract what we're looking for. We can see it so much easier. We can identify when people have broken boundaries or a lack thereof. We can see others' value more accurately. We can see what they actually have to offer, not what it seems like they have to offer on paper, which a lot of the times doesn't fucking matter. Because here's the thing, right? You could be like, well, I want somebody that is financially secure. Do you know how many people I knew that were financially secure before COVID? Something that is completely beyond our control. So money comes and goes. And if that is a large reason that you're with somebody, it's not going to last. Because again, money comes and goes. If you want somebody that is emotionally secure and stable, that's just an innate characteristic they have. That will last. And it will last definitely longer than money, obviously. So those are the kinds of things I'm talking about. And along those same lines, we can see just who has self-worth and value and who doesn't. Nobody wants to be with somebody that's insecure, right? A lot of people are insecure. But the kind of insecurity I'm talking about is the kind of insecurity that breeds these resentments or causes these fights for people to like project their insecurities onto other people or suspect that someone's cheating when really maybe they're not. That's the kind of insecurity I'm talking about. And that is so important because it helps navigate us away from those relationships that could potentially be toxic and or very dangerous. So you want to make sure that somebody is not an insecure person as opposed to a person with insecurities. And then, of course, there's the power of knowing what's important to you, right? It's when you stand for nothing, you fall for everything. So when you have these things that really mean something to you, you know both what you want and need out of life and the people you choose to have in it. 
And while the world might be screaming outside all around you with this noise that we're always submerged in, once you've spent time alone, you develop the skill of knowing how to tune that out. Like there's so many times where people will talk at me and before I used to really listen to what they had to say. And then I'd feel like really underwhelmed or something after the conversation. But now I'm like, oh, this person's talking at me. They're not actually having a conversation with me. So anything that I invest in saying here really isn't going to be heard anyway. It's, it's just having that awareness to where ultimately at the end of the day, you're feeling like you're respecting yourself more. It's not being rude, but if someone's talking at you and you know they're not really going to listen to anything you have to say, you're not going to waste your time giving them valuable feedback and then get upset if they didn't hear you or they didn't take it or, or that you spent all that time and care and had concern about this person that really at the end of the day didn't give a shit what you had to say. Little tiny things like that that you think don't bother you or don't matter, but then in this random moment, something will totally set you off and you won't understand why you're so mad. And my guess would be that it's because little things like this happen over time. This is the whole premise of how bitches are made. All of these things happen over time and then it causes us to explode and overreact, which is what we don't want to do. We want to nip that in the bud and get ahead of it. So the ultimate power lies in having control over yourself and your life and the decisions you make which lead to a healthier and more fulfilling one. Now, historically and stereotypically, more women have a harder time being alone than men. However, the trend that I observed when I was doing the online dating on the dates that I was going on with men was that men were having just as hard of a time which was so weird for me because I'd never heard that perspective before. And I think it's really naive and ignorant of women to be like, oh, well, men just suck. Because the truth is they're saying the same thing about us, right? It's the bad ones that ruin it for the rest of us. But it, it was really fascinating to me because the stories that I would hear, I was like, oh, my God, like I would never do that. We always think that it's us versus them. But the truth is we're all in this together. And... <laughs> My thought is that men are emotionally constipated, so they're not as comfortable dealing with emotional feelings. And women have like taken an emotional laxative where they're like overly comfortable with feelings and they overshare and they say too much and we got to rein that in a little bit. Bottom line, both of us have unhealthy patterns that we need to work on. And those unhealthy patterns affect the other group and thus affect our happiness, right? Because if men are, if men are like, there's no good women and women are like, there's no good men. And I don't mean to single out uh, the LGBTQ community. I'm I'm just explaining this from a heterosexual female's perspective because, again, I'm pertaining this to my own experience as a heterosexual woman. So please feel free to swap in female-female as it suits your life when I speak. So if if men are thinking that there are no good women and women are thinking there are no good men – and they're getting all like they're the enemy about it. We're not going to be insightful enough to make changes in our own life that then affect someone else's life and then would give us the thing that we're after, right? If we're better, it, it then is a domino effect of other people being better and then we get what we're after. I believe I echoed a similar sentiment in episode six of season one, Sticks and Stones, meaning we have to hold each other accountable and we have to own up to our contribution and our responsibilities in this relationship. So what's super interesting is when you go out into the dating world, you have an idea of what you're looking for. It's sort of like a checklist or a grocery list 
for some people, it's purely physical. I'm looking for someone with brown hair, brown eyes of, you know, Italian descent. Their parents are still married. They make over six figures a year. Um, They have their own apartment, like kind of things like that, which some of them are very important, right? If If a person has their own apartment that they're paying for, that is really indicative of them being self-sufficient. So I would invite you to, instead of saying he has his own place or she has her own place, I would say they're self-sufficient. Replace that item on your checklist with things like that because that self-sufficiency will show itself in other areas too that you might not be looking for at first. Or if you're looking for it in the form of them having their own apartment, you might not realize that they actually are self-sufficient even if they have a roommate. Because you're only looking at it in terms of their housing situation, where if you were looking at it across the board in other ways, you'd be like, ah, they're self-sufficient because of how they're showing sufficiency in this area. So it's really important to have good checklists. What I perceive as great checklists is what I just said, someone who's self-sufficient. For me, that's important because I'm self-sufficient. I don't expect you to take care of me, so please don't expect me to take care of you. We can take care of each other. The number one thing that should be on everyone's checklist, and I don't care who you are, is that they are a whole person and so are you. You don't want to date anybody that is not a whole person. A whole person is somebody that has spent time alone. They've done that hard work. They know who they are inside and out. They know what they need. But most importantly, they know what they want. Because as I've said before, ideally... You want to be with someone who doesn't need anything from you. And you want to be with somebody who you don't need anything from. You want to be so whole that you're just looking for something you want in your life. There is so much fucking power in that. I cannot even tell you. Well, I'm going to tell you. (laughs) It's like next on my note sheet. So actually, uh, put a pin in that for a second. So let's keep talking about online dating really quickly. So um, just to tie this into the story, I went into on online dating with a very inquisitive nature, more than having any expectations of finding somebody. And that's a lot easier to do when you realize you don't need somebody, but you want them instead. Um, when you need someone there is immediately an expectation attached to that, right? You expect them to fulfill this need. That is exactly what a need is. But when you want somebody, there's there's nothing on the line. There's lower stakes. There's no expectations. There's tons of power, as I keep reiterating. My experience was, overall, that the people that I kept finding on dating apps were typically looking for a placeholder. So these were the people that didn't want to spend time alone. They were very uncomfortable with it. It's better to just sleep around, distract yourself. These are the distractions we talk about. Go out on dates, take my mind off the pain, and um, fill up the time so that I don't have to sit alone with these thoughts that I have. Which, honestly, can be very rewarding if you do. But it's understandable why people don't want to do it, because as we already mentioned, there's a negative stigma attached to that. And people use dating apps for very... Various reasons. I believe Kevin told me one time, (laughs) 
He told me one time that he was on dating apps just because he wanted to see how many people he matched with because it boosted his ego. It made him feel better. That's totally, totally understandable. I think to some degree, all of us are guilty of doing that. But it it really is unfair to the people that are out there really looking for something and hoping for a match because it gets their hopes up and then like you weren't really available. So my takeaway from that is if you really are looking for something serious, it's like cheap apps are going to give you a cheap product, so to speak, your potential people that you're going to date being the product. So if you're really serious, I do think it's worth spending some money because the people that are spending money to find somebody are obviously serious enough to be using their hard-earned dollars to do so. So that would be my advice when it comes to online dating if you're looking for something serious. But going back to just these cheaper apps, Tinder, Bumble, whatever the hell they are now, it's just, it's so hard. I feel so bad. But I want to make that process a little bit easier for you because I know it sucks. So some things that I found to be very helpful, men and women present themselves differently on dating apps, right? Men are presenting themselves in a way that they think will attract women and women are doing what they think will attract men. They're selling themselves. So they're trying to tell you what they think you want to hear. That's already a big fucking red flag because we don't know what anyone wants to hear. We just need to say who we actually are. This is another thing when we started at the top of the episode of talking about masks. Here we go. We're confronted with bios again, right? But my things were always like if they were exotic animals if there were pictures with um, strippers or sports cars or, you know, diamond chains or celebrities, like all of these things I feel are like done to impress. And again, that's a distraction. Why are you trying to distract me from who you really are? What that communicates to me is you haven't figured out who you are yet because that shit doesn't really matter. That's shit you think matters or things that people have told you matter. So you really have to look at what people are saying in their bio line. First of all, no, it's what they think you want to hear. But there's just ways that people word things where you know what they're really saying versus what it appears they're saying. Secondly, I would say once you start talking to them, when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Are they asking you questions about you? Are they talking at you? Do you feel like they're more interested in talking about themselves? How many days go by or minutes or seconds go by between your exchanges? What are the exchanges really about? And then, of course, when you do meet, I think you really, really need to have a good game plan about how that goes down. But we'll get to that in a second. The other thing I wanted to say is I never thought about this until someone brought it up to me. So I know Bumble is all about the girls making the first move. And I was like, oh, that's cute. That's, you know, for girls to be comfortable. But I didn't look at the flip side of it. The flip side being the girls come to the guys. I don't like that. I don't know. I, I've i told you guys before, like, I'm all about taking initiative and making the first move. It's just never led to positive results in my experience. For me, 
I like to give the litmus test to the guy. Again, that's what's so beautiful about being alone is you get into this power position and it shouldn't be about power. So please don't misinterpret that. You get into this power position though, where you're not looking for approval. You're doing the approving. It's not to say you're approving of someone. It's you approve of this person being in your life. There's nothing wrong with that. So develop your litmus test and assess people. And don't feel bad about the way you're assessing them. But, but in order to do any of that, you have to spend time alone to determine what is important to you. I want to give you guys an example of what I'm talking about. So I met this guy. First of all, his profile pictures have him smoking a joint. <laughs> I mean, I don't think I really need to explain this. But anyhow, his profile says, 6'2", Santa Monica, California. Love being active. I enjoy sports, outdoorsy activities, concerts, playing the piano, and traveling. Okay, I, that that seemed fine enough. Like, his picture was douchey, but I was like, okay, like, I, f- I feel comfortable enough with the way he describes himself and, like, his interests. Cool. So I reach, uh, he reaches out to me after we match. And he says, hey. And I said, hi, how are you? He says, I'm good, how are you? Immediately goes, where do you live? And I go, I'm good, thanks. West Hollywood area, you? He goes, I'm good. Was in West Hollywood today for a meeting. Ha, ha, ha. I don't know why that's funny. I live in Santa Monica. What do you do? Okay, so you're immediately asking me these questions that we've just talked about. Where do you live? What do you do? These are not questions to get to know me. They are questions to profile me. (laughs) So I called him out and I go, we're just really hitting all the classic LA get to know you questions, aren't we? And then I said, what's your favorite thing about living in Santa Monica? And then I told him that I was a writer. I don't like to tell people I'm an actor um, in these situations, which this story clearly explains why. Um, And he says, the beach, ha ha. And I said, do you surf? And he says, I do. You, when is your birthday? And I said, well, I tried once. I'm more of a hiker, but I admire people that can surf. Have you been doing it a while? My birthday was two Saturdays ago. And he said, oh, happy belated birthday. Tons of emojis. And I said, why, thank you. And he goes, I love Aquarians. And I said, when is yours? We're pretty awesome. He goes, been surfing for 10 years. I'm a Virgo. Oh, God, I didn't remember that. (sighs) That was my first mistake. (laughs) If I knew more about astrology back then, I would have ended it right then. No offense to Virgos. We're just not a good match. Um, So then he says, oh, or I said, oh, so you can do it in your sleep. That's cool. And then I said, my sister's a Virgo, and she's always been a good surfer also. And he says back to me, Virgo and Aquarius is best sex ever. (laughs) Ha, ha, ha. How tall are you? And I said, you're funny, but I'm getting the sense we're looking for different things. Don't want to waste your time. And he goes, oh, what are you looking for? And I said, well, I'm not looking to jump into a relationship, but I'm not looking for a hookup either. And he goes, yeah, same here. And I said, forgive me if I'm wrong. I am making an assumption based on the questions you're asking, and that could be wrong, but I'll let you tell me that. And he said, oh, no, I mean, I was just telling you how it was between our horoscope signs. How tall are you? Are you originally from L.A.? And I said, I got that. I'm 5'5". I'm not. I'm from Phoenix, but I've lived here for 16 years. You? And he goes, nice height. I knew why he was asking for my height, by the way. And he goes, you're Irish-Italian? And I said, I am. And he said, I'm Egyptian-Italian, but don't worry, I'm not that hairy, LOL. And then he said, but I like hairy girls. And then he said, are you hairy? I like Harry down there. I think it's feminine and sexy. And then asked me what my pubic hair was like. (laughs) 
And I said, that information is highly classified. And then I changed the subject again. And I said, so you work in tech doing what exactly? And then he ignored me and said, don't be shy from me. I'm pretty big. Don't forget, I'm Egyptian Italian. And I said, oh, you're so predictable. And then he says, too bad you're small. I feel I won't be able to go deeply inside of you all the way. This is the first time we're having a conversation. Hello? (laughs) Not okay. So then I said to him, okay, see, this is what I am talking about. And he had said to me, I want to give it to you from behind. You like it rough? Okay, I'm tipsy tonight. It's so cold, I have to keep drinking wine. Give me a break. And I said, no judgment. I'm just more interested in getting to know someone before I get to know them in bed. I'm all about being playful and having sexy banter, but I haven't even met you yet. And and then I ultimately just signed off. But these are the things that I'm kind of talking about. Like, this guy is, first of all, This seems to be like a trend, people drinking when they're having these interactions, which is a huge red flag. Like you don't get to you don't get to know somebody and have a connection with them when when they're drunk. Right. That's just that's not that's not attractive. It's not cool. It's not meaningful. It's not a real connection. I think the thing that was very frustrating to me about this is I was like, hey, we're looking for different things. You're clearly looking to like have fun. And I'm not. I'm looking at getting to know somebody and seeing where it goes. And anyhow, so that was just an example of one of the things I endured on that was Tinder, which I know Tinder's is the hookup app. But remarkably, that was one of I might have been the only one actually that was that stereotypical of Tinder. Everyone else I met on there was really, really great. But the the thing I think that was really interesting was, again, at this point, I knew what I wanted and him trying to objectify me and sexualize me. All of a sudden, it didn't infuriate me like it would have in the past. Um, I found it entertaining because I thought he looked like such a tool. I was like, wow, this guy doesn't even know how stupid he's coming off. And again, for me, these were just like character studies. I was kind of fascinated by these people. I was learning something through all these exchanges. Um, kind of sifting out and and figuring out how to communicate and connect with people. It's like, sure, you live in Santa Monica, but it could be like, where where do you live and what brought you to that part of town? That would be an example of a better way to ask that question because then you're going to learn, oh, well, I actually moved to West Hollywood because I like to walk to all the places that are near my apartment. I'm a big walker. I'm in love with New York City. Like you learn so much more about me that way, right? As opposed to me just saying I live in West Hollywood. The other thing I learned from all of these dates I went on was how many people have unhealthy relationships and boundaries. It's overwhelming, super overwhelming. I mean, I always had girls telling me about the dickhead guys that they met, but I, again, had never heard about men looking for something real who continuously found bad girls. And the thing that I often found myself feeling after each one of these dates was empathy. I felt so bad for them. And it kind of prompted me to like, want to go out with them again because like I wanted them to have pleasant experiences but I had to ultimately tell myself a that would be leading them on which is almost as bad and b it's not my responsibility to help them through it I don't need to fix people I only need to fix me it's so incredibly hard to find people with boundaries and proper mental health case in point I was in my apartment one day and I get this text here's the text (laughs) because I can't believe these things happen This person says to me, sorry, not sure why my phone was cutting out so bad. And I said, that's okay. Who is this? He says, anyway, I was just calling to say what's up while I was driving home. Hope you're doing well. 
And then he said his name. I said, who, who are you trying to get a hold of? I, I feel like you might have the wrong number. And he said, oh, I thought I was calling Erica. And I said, oh, yes, my name is Rachel. No Erica here. And he said, oh, crap, I'm so sorry. I must have dialed it wrong. You're probably like, what the fuck? Well, nice to accidentally meet you, Miss Rachel. Hope I didn't wake you up or anything. Sorry for bothering you because this was like at 1030 at night. And I said, no worries. No, I wasn't. I had a feeling because I didn't recognize your voice, which is lovely, by the way, but it kept breaking up so I couldn't hear you. Likewise, nope, no waking. Then he says, this is why this is why girls need to practice not being so nice. <laughs> then he says, I have a lovely voice. Well, I've never heard that before. Thank you. Yours was lovely as well. I was actually able to hear you. Ha ha. Want to try again? You seem nice. Ah, sorry. Maybe that's weird. No worries. I'll let you go. Have a good night. Potentially destined new friend. And I said, I appreciate the open-mindedness. I was actually writing a birthday card when you called and I'm getting ready for bed now. Always open to meeting new friends, especially in strange circumstances. Those are the best stories. I thought that that would kind of be it. And then he texts me the next day at 6 in the morning. Good morning, new friend. I don't respond. 10.30 in the morning. How did writing out the birthday card go? Hopefully you weren't still writing it out and you got some sleep. I didn't respond. An hour and a half later. Two, two and a half hours later. Bored at work, so I'm going to keep texting you. But seriously, if you don't want me to, I won't be offended if you tell me to go away since this was all just a happy accident anyway. So, where are you from? What do you do? What kind of music are you into? Do you like cats or dogs? How old are you? Do you like Mexican food as much as me? And I said, Hi. Was funny situation to meet you in for sure, but yes, neither of us know anything about each other, and I feel I may have given you the wrong impression with regard to my saying you had a nice voice. Was just an observation. I am in a happy and committed relationship, but I do wish you the best on your journey. And he said, well, that's very nice of you to clarify, but honestly, I didn't get any sort of impression rather than it was just a nice compliment, but I totally understand if you'd rather we just go our separate ways. No pressure at all. And I'm like, dude, you just fucking reached out to me for a fucking wrong number how like talk about no boundaries i no wonder some chick gave you the wrong number you guys you can't do that shit not cool um so anyway that was just a friendly reminder for girls to be careful of what you say and how it can be interpreted as an invitation <laughs> apparently but suffice it to say there's a lot of unhealthy people with a lot of broken boundaries out there so now let's turn towards the story I was telling you in specific situations as in the cases of Max and Jared. Starting with Max, I do have to be, I'm what they call demisexual. So I have to be attracted to someone intellectually until I'm like sexually intrigued even. So uh, a big part of that for me is talent. So the fact, <laughs> this is crazy, but it's true. So this is an example of how superficial things on your checklist, like there will be certain superficial things or things that seem superficial that will stick. And this is an example of that. So my superficial must on a checklist, if you will, is that they have to be good at what they do. Because for me, that is part of my attraction. And Max, I knew who he was based on this series that I watched. And I remember before I even knew him, I was like, this guy is awful. Like he's terrible. And I just didn't respect his work as an actor. I'm sure there are people that don't respect my work as an actor. Totally fine. It's all subjective. But for me, I never liked his acting, which should have been a red flag for me because I didn't respect what he did. And ultimately, like, I didn't care for him as a person and I didn't respect him as a person. So for me, I've realized that part of my respecting someone else lies in their ability to do good work and taking pride in their work. 
One part of of my interaction with Max that I kind of briefly touched upon was this mutual friend that we had. And his mutual friend actually ended up sharing this story with me about how he had this long, long time girlfriend. He was also a well-known actor and he got some success on a show that he was on and he broke up with her. I think I think it was it was a, a few months later, weeks later or something, he thought maybe he had made a mistake. And she was like, look, I am getting on with my life. I'm moving to New York and I'm not going to change my plans just because you're saying you want to get back together with me. If you want to get back together with me, you will prove it to me. I'm leaving. And she left. Now, I'm citing this story because some people would hear that as an ultimatum, which it is, but there are good ultimatums and there are bad ultimatums. A bad ultimatum is telling someone you're going to do something if they don't do what you want. And the reason you're doing that, your main motivation is to get them to do what you want. That's a bad ultimatum. A good ultimatum is, this is what I'm doing. And if you want to interject from my doing that, it's up to you to do that. And if that ends up getting me what I want in the end, cool. But that's not why I'm doing this. I'm doing this because this is a decision I need to make for me without factoring you into it. And you'll be malleable as you see fit. That is an example of a good ultimatum, which is what this woman did. Ultimately, he went out to New York, wooed her, got her back, moved out there, and then they got married. And the only way you're really capable of pitching a good ultimatum, if you will, is when you're in total control of your life and you're totally clear on what you want, what you need, and what makes you happy. In this case, this girl needed to move on with her life, start anew, and press forward. And she didn't care what the consequences were because that was what she needed. And whatever this guy needed, he would make happen. That was his responsibility. And if in the end, it ended up being presented to her as I want to get back together with you and now I've made all these major shifts in my life to prove it to you, she would then be like, hmm, okay, let me think about this and, and how I want to proceed. It wasn't, I'm, I'm moving just to test you, in other words. So the other thing aspect of this story that I wanted to point out was the idea of this cool girl. If you remember back in season one, I talked about girlfriend contouring and like being the surfer girl or like the rock girl or the cowboy girl or whatever costume you're putting on to um, fit into the person you're dating their world. The cool girl is a role that is like the chick that is like, you know, doesn't get her feathers ruffled, right? She's like kind of down for anything. She's just very easygoing, very non-confrontational. A lot of girls have tried to be the cool girl. It is not a fun, it's not cool. (laughs) The cool girl is not cool. I, back in my early 20s, tried really hard to be the cool girl. And I ultimately realized it's not a good feeling. It's not who I am. It's actually me actively hiding who I am, downplaying my wants and needs and silencing my own voice. But at this point in my life, when I went on these dates with Max, I it was interesting to observe them testing me to see if I was the cool girl by pushing boundaries, right? Oh, can you drive us home? Oh, can you stop and pick up photos on the way? 
Which, by the way, any time you're like, oh, sure, sure, when you're the eager to please girl, guys just don't respect you as much. I'm sorry, but I just don't think that they do. Because, again, that goes back to, yeah, I don't really have time to do all these things because I have my own life. And then they're like, oh, what's that about? Like, people respond better with, with boundaries and restrictions like children do. Think about it in terms of children. Children want boundaries. So, so do people. In this situation, I was totally uninvested and I totally didn't care and I did these things because truthfully I had nothing better to do that day. I'd set aside the day to be on this date on this side of the hill. There was traffic. I was just trying to buy my time and then once I got that audition I was like okay now I have something going on in my life. I'm out of here. What was very cool about my few dates with Max was that I found myself comparing our two worlds and was able to actually see myself more clearly. I was able to see the the ways I had grown, i.e. the example I just explained with the cool girl. Um, but I was I was beginning to see even more so my accomplishments and what I what I actually had to offer. So my self-worth and my value were continuing to grow. And then it made me more precious with with the things I felt I had to offer. And then it made me more precious with who I determined I would want to share that with or who felt safe enough to share that with. So now let's turn to my experience with Jared. I think my fatal flaw here was mistaking his broken boundaries for his eagerness. So I was flattered by how excited he seemed by me and how quickly he wanted to meet me. What I would know now, having been in the same situation at the place I am in life, I would be like, this person is too eager. I'm not gonna entertain it. Which is really interesting because if you think back, especially to when you first start dating, it's like you meet somebody and then there was that three-day rule. You wait two or three days before you reach out. And we all hated that, right? We're like, oh, they're playing games. But what I've since learned is, it, is it's actually really, really healthy, again, if you're doing it for the right reasons. So the goal would be you do have so much going on in your life that you it kind of slips your mind a little bit, which is natural because... While you can be excited about somebody, you're tempering yourself by knowing you don't really know them. And so like you're kind of restraining yourself from getting too excited to where you would reach out to them before it's it's actually natural to reach out to them. Like for instance, you meet them on a Monday. Well, why would you reach out to them on a Tuesday? It makes more sense to reach out to them closer to the weekend when potentially you could see them again. And during the week, the hope would be you have so much going on in your life that you have to tend to that stuff first. And of course, we all want to be thought of. We want to feel like we're important or we matter. But just because someone doesn't text you the next day doesn't mean they're not thinking about you. I actually think it's because they have boundaries. So don't get bent out of shape if you met somebody and you're waiting for them to get back to you. If you have that much time to, to be tallying and thinking about, oh my God, how long has it been since they responded to me or reached out or anything, I would invite you to turn inward and look at what you're not doing in your life. How can you better fill that time instead of having anxiety about this person you don't know and taking things personally because they're not doing something or doing something? Again, you don't know them. So you are assuming that you know them to know what their intention is or th what their thoughts are behind these actions. Then you need to think about, hmm, maybe I don't have enough going on in my life to occupy my time that's fulfilling and important. 
that is really the problem there. There was one time when I was working on my house when I first got it and Lorena was actually trying to set me up with somebody and he reached out to me. I responded to him right away and I think I was like painting baseboards or something at the time and then I got so caught up in what I was doing. It was like three days later and I was like, oh my God, I never texted him back and then I texted him back and I was like, I'm so sorry. I have so much going on. We ultimately never met. Here's the thing though. Those three days wouldn't have mattered. He would have been like, no problem. Like, what are you working on? That's so cool. And I would have been like, what have you been up to? Whatever. Your right person or the person that is right for you is not going to mind a couple days going by without, you know, hearing from, from you. Because again, the hope would be you have enough going on where that's not even on your radar. You don't even have time to think about that, to analyze it, to get anxious about it, to where you're keeping tally. The other thing I want to address about Jared is paying attention to how we feel about someone or a situation and and not being so quick to dismiss it or improperly diagnose it. Again, this is another superficial example, but for me, it's a little deeper than just surface. The way Jared and I both dressed for this occasion. I dressed to the nines. I want you all to know I do not come for money. My dad had three jobs when I was a child. My mom was on disability. I've had a job since I was 14. Our families very much all supported each other in any way you can support a family. And I've worked my ass off. I do. I very much have the I don't come from money attitude. So when I dress like I have a ton of money, because let's be honest, like I did have a period in my life where I I had a steady job as an actor and that was lucrative. I bought nice things then. So when I wear these nice things and someone shows up that's dressed not as nice as me, it brings me back to my roots where I feel very guilty. I don't want them to think I'm high maintenance. I want them to know I come from that same background. But like the bigger question is why am I getting insecure about the way I dress, the money I made to be able to afford to dress like that? Those are indicators for me to recognize this is not the right fit because I'm feeling insecure. What Whatever is making me feel insecure, there's no shame in it. But I shouldn't be afraid to walk tall and walk in the power that I hold. If I feel like I have to bring myself down or make myself smaller to make someone else more comfortable, that's a red flag. And for me, that manifested in the way of us being dressed the way we were. The way people present themselves is very important to me. What I have since learned since this exchange is that that's because design is very important to me. I like things to be aesthetically beautiful. That doesn't mean you have to spend a ton of money to do that. It just means you need to know how to present. And I didn't feel like, let's be honest, at the time I was still acting, I didn't feel like this guy would know how to dress for a red carpet occasion. And again, I wasn't interested in teaching someone how to do those things. I wanted somebody that was already there. It just felt like we were on two totally different planes. I didn't feel like I could talk about my successes without somehow offending his, if that makes sense. The point being, when you feel like there's certain things you can't talk about, you're withholding information about yourself. Like that's another red flag. And I think a lot of times, girls' guilt kind of coerces them into entering into things that are very uncomfortable and not right for them and we feel obligatory and we want to be nice and and make someone feel better because we're so empathetic and like concerned about everyone feeling good 
And that is a result of our upbringing. We're taught we need to please and serve others and not really put ourselves first. I guess I just felt on this date like I was so acutely aware of how he saw me and I knew it wasn't who I actually was. So all of all of these things he was kind of enamored by, I was like, You're, you can't even see past them because they're so distracting to you. I just, I felt all this pressure and I felt so uncomfortable and I could only imagine how people feel this way on the receiving end of me doing it or, or anyone doing that. And then they get improperly labeled as a villain as a result. We're not even thinking about the position we put them in and we think, how could they have done this to us? They just ghosted us. They just blew us off. We need to think about our contribution and responsibility in the dynamics before we go on the attack when something doesn't work out in our favor. Um, that was the kind of the irony in all of this. He was very similar to the farmer in that way where they, they couldn't see past the distractions. Again, we just keep talking about these masks and distractions. They weren't seeing me for who I really was and it didn't seem like they really wanted to. They just wanted, they got caught up in this idea of me rather than who I really was. And we're all guilty of that in one way or another. So to recap, when you spend time alone, you get clear on your identity and then you find power in that. And then ultimately through that power, you find freedom. My grandma said, as I stated in the story, love is blind. Marriage is an eye opener. Oh, she said loneliness was a killer. That was the other thing. So loneliness doesn't have to be a killer, but. I do believe that it kills an old part of you, a past version of you that is essential for you to shed the layer of before you can have growth. And in that growth, you are able to see things more clearly to where you can understand what you want and why you're even getting married in the first place. So there are so many failed, I put that in air quotes, marriages today, divorces, annulments, what have you. Marriage is not thought of as the institution it once was. It's very easy to be like, that didn't work out, moving on to the next. But I think we can all agree it's still something we're not happy when it happens. Like we'd like to avoid it as much as we can. I think the best way to do that, again, is to just spend time alone so that you enter into these healthier relationships. Healthy people attract healthy people unhealthy people attract unhealthy people so when you get healthy you can see who is healthy as well and attract those people make a connection and make a connection that lasts forever you have to think about what you really want do you just want companionship do you want partnership why do you want to be married what does being married mean to you is that something you really want or is that something you think you want because that's what we're supposed to do there is so much freedom in being alone because honestly, you do get comfortable being alone. Like I'm in a relationship now and let me be the first to tell you, there's a lot of times where I'm like, fuck, if I were alone, this would be so much fucking easier because I got comfortable being alone. <laughs> but that's what makes it so beautiful and more important. Like I choose my partner every day because I want him in my life. I don't need him. I don't. And some guys have a hard time with not being needed. I don't mean like, look, Kevin wires all my electrical shit. I need him in that way. But do I really? No, I could hire someone to do that. It's wonderful that Kevin can do that amongst many other things that he can do. 
But at the end of the day, that's not why I'm with him. I don't need him to take care of me. I want him in my life because he's fun and I enjoy spending time with him and he's my best friend and I love the way his brain thinks and I love the way he he does these he does these things for me that are so thoughtful like every night before bed he's like do you want some water how's your water like he makes my coffee in the morning like there's those are just such thoughtful nice things And it adds so much joy and love and gratitude into my life. And that's what makes a really, really healthy relationship. That is what we want. And I think so many people get caught up in the, I need to get married. It's on my bucket list. It's what I'm supposed to do. And they check it off. The reason I believe this is because so many times, especially like on Instagram, people will announce they're getting married and they'll just like show a picture of the ring. I don't give a fuck what your ring looks like. Tell me about who you're marrying. What about them excites you? What your story with them is. That is so indicative to me of it not being about the other person. That is about it being about the distraction. So like, let's really ask ourselves why we're getting married. Is it something we really, really want? Don't get married to like have someone complete you, make your life easy, you know, unless that's your arrangement. But like, I I just think so many people rush into getting married without really understanding what it could or what it should and could be. And here's the thing. If you end up not getting married or deciding that after you spend so much time alone, you don't want to get married. Cool. Guess what? Being alone is super fun. You've learned that through being alone. And that's the freedom I'm talking about. It's just, it's so nice. It's so, so fucking nice to be self-reliant and choose what you want to have in your life. It's great. Mark told me that I would find somebody when I least expected it or when I stopped looking. And I'm sure many of you have heard that same sentiment from friends or family. But here's what it actually translates to. When you no longer need someone and you want them, you will find them. You will bring them into your life. It's really that simple. It's about not needing somebody anymore, being totally whole and on your own, and then choosing what you have in your life. And what you choose as a result of being alone will be good and will be right for you and will be healthy and fulfilling. In our next story, we're going to talk more about what it means to be a free woman in the face of mother nature (laughs) when I take you on a trip with me to the gynecologist. I really like this story and I hope you do too. So I want to thank you all for listening. I want to remind you to like, subscribe, share, and review. You can follow me at the Rachel Melvin across all platforms. You can visit our website, howbitchesaremade.com. And if you want to share a story, feedback, if you need advice, if you have a question, etc., please email us, info at howbitchesaremade.com. You guys, we're going to have new episodes every Wednesday. I was kind of experimenting at the beginning of the season when I released them to see like what day more people were listening to. Wednesday is the day hump day so every Wednesday there will be a new episode and then there will be an occasional surprise bonus episode on Fridays thank you to those that helped with our reenactments for this episode they are Darcy Weinberger Kamar De Los Reyes Kevin Barrett Blake Barris Jackson Davis and as always the incredible Steve Tom thank you for listening everyone and remember consistency is key stay bitchy my friends see you next week How Bitches Are Made is written and produced by Rachel Melvin. 